you lovely geeky people and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views and reviews. I was going to call it your weekly geeky guide, but actually, let's be honest, it's just me ranting about stuff that I'm either incredibly enthusiastic about or really, really annoyed by. Let's start with me to go on and open with something that's really positive. So, Strange New World Season 3 continues apace, and without further ado, and before I forget like I did last week, you should be aware that there will now be spoilers for Episode 3 of Season 2 of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Even if you are listening to this at the earliest possible opportunity, the episode is a week old. If you have not seen it and you do not wish to be spoiled, then skip the next... 10 minutes or so. And just for the avoidance of doubt, here's the horn. Spoilers. Spoilers. Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, it's fairly clear that Anson Mount was busy when they were filming season two of Strange New Worlds, because this is another Pike light episode, which is to say Captain Pike appears in one scene for less than a minute at the very end of the episode. So that's two-thirds of the episodes of season two that have currently been broadcast that Pike essentially does not appear in. And you know what? That just shows the strength of Star Trek, doesn't it? There is no doubt. I said this last week, and there is no doubt that pretty much the main reason we have Star Trek Strange New Worlds is the undoubted charisma of Anson Mount as Captain Pike. So, whilst I thought it was a genuinely eccentric decision for the season opener to not feature him at all, I have to salute the confidence of a show that says, you know what, we're an ensemble cast, and every single member of our cast can carry the show. And you know what? So far, they've been right. So, what happens in this particular episode? It's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which, of course, is a quote from Shakespeare. Specifically from Macbeth, a play I know much more than I'd like, given the number of times I've taught it at GCSE. I mean, I've taught it to students. I've never taught an actual play. That would be a weird thing. To Yeah, anyway. And of course, given the predilection for pop culture to quote Shakespeare, calling an episode of Strange New Worlds tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow could in fact have been a reference to other pop culture references. So they could have been referencing Hamilton, for instance, or um, I think there's an episode of the Orville called Tomorrow, Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Although the chances that Star Trek would reference Orville, they probably wouldn't. Anyway, doesn't matter. What's it about? Well, this episode focuses on La'an Noonan Singh, Lieutenant La'an Noonan Singh, who is not having the best time. It's made very clear at the opening of the episode that Laan is feeling very isolated and very alone. And there's a very good reason for that. If you are not deeply immersed in Star Trek lore, you may not know why 
somebody with the last name Noon and Singh might feel a little set apart from everybody else. So quick refresher, because it is actually important to the episode as well. One of the greatest villains in the whole of Star Trek mythology is Khan Noonan Singh, played to some great effect by Ricardo Montalban in both the original series episode, The Seed, and to even greater effect in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which I think is rightly regarded by almost everybody as the best of the, the movies featuring the original Enterprise crew. So, of course, carrying that name, the Noonan Singh name, in the Federation is very difficult. Uh, the great John Suntris, uh, whose Word Balloon podcast is also reviewing Star Trek in all its forms, uh, joked that the equivalent would be to have somebody walking around in modern Western military forces called Susie Hitler. It's a name that is that loaded in the Star Trek mythology. So, of course, Lieutenant La'an Noonan Singh has issues. I mean, not only is she not wrong that, you know, people kind of are reacting to her name, but also she's developed something of a chip on her shoulder about it. And so the opening of the episode does a nice vignette showing La'an in her capacity as chief security officer being the cop on board the Enterprise. And, you know, we see her responding to a noise complaint against Spock, who is playing his Vulcan harpy thing. We see her dealing with sort of petty disputes amongst crew members that are, you know, beginning to get a little bit fractious and might dissolve into sort of mild fighting. And we see her dealing with their new chief engineer, who I have not spoken of particularly before, and I think now is as good a time as any. You see, the new chief engineer, who is played by Carol Kane. Now, I didn't think I knew who she was, and just cruising through the Internet Movie Database, I note that she has been in a whole bunch of stuff that I haven't seen, but I also note that she is Valerie in The Princess Bride, and I swear I would not have recognised her. So, there you go. Anyway, as I said, Carol Kane plays the the new chief engineer who replaces Hemmer, who, spoilers, died last season. Pellier is a lanthanite. Now, I thought I'd missed something, because everybody on board the Enterprise acts like they know who lanthanites are, and I didn't. And it turns out, neither did anybody else. She is the first lanthanite to appear in Star Trek, and lanthanites as a species are new to Trek lore. Now, as far as I can tell, lanthanites are humanoid and look completely human, and more to the point, have been on Earth mixing undetected with the people of Earth for centuries. Lanthanites themselves have very long lifespans and have also been alive for centuries. Pelia is at least 200 years old. That is going to become crucial to this plot. As is the fact that the interaction we see her having with La'an Noonan Singh at the start of the show is La'an with a team of very stern-looking security people, surrounded by art and sculpture and stuff from Earth's past, with La'an saying, I bought it all. This is all mine. I used to be an antique dealer. And it's, yeah, it's clear it isn't. It's clear that it's kind of stolen. And that's also going to become a thing. But for now, 
All you need to know is that we see all this with Laan going round and you know being the cop, and then she comes across an unknown person, an intruder, in one of the Enterprise's corridors. She challenges him and discovers he's been shot. He's certainly bleeding. He's been shot by a bullet. That's weird. They don't use bullets in the Federation because you know, bullets and spaceships don't really mix. And he's dressed oddly. He's in a sort of grey suit. You don't see people wearing those on board the Enterprise. And as he dies, he tells La'an that there's going to be an attack and she has to get to the bridge. At that point, he disappears in a flash of light. And La'an, who is very confused, makes her way to the bridge as instructed. Where she discovers that sitting in the captain's chair is not Anson Mount as Captain Pike. No, no, she finds Paul Wesley as Captain James Tiberius Kirk. Ooh. Because it's a time travel episode. It's a time paradox episode. It's a consequences of the past being change episode. Something has happened in the past. It's changed the timeline. And now we discover not only is Pike not captain of the Enterprise, the Federation doesn't exist in the form that La'an is used to. And the galaxy is at war with the Romulans. And the Romulans are winning. Kirk, of course, knows none of this. And so he interrogates La'an. She explains everything. He doesn't believe a word of it. But then the two of them are catapulted back in time by a device that La'an had taken off the mysterious man. Suddenly, they're on Earth in Toronto, uncovering a plot to change history. Plot which only Kirk and La'an can thwart. Plot that involves Romulans and La'an's ancestor, one Khan Noonan Singh. Now, I'm not going to go too deeply into the story beyond that, except to say that we do have another clear use of Chekhov's gun. Always an odd thing to say in relation to Star Trek. But we are introduced not only to Pellier's antique collection, but also told she claims to have accumulated it at the beginning of the episode. And during the episode, Kirk and La'an need to find an engineer who would understand advanced concepts that the people of the time that they are currently in would not understand. Except, of course, La'an Noonan Singh knows exactly where to find Pelia, and so they go to find her chief engineer. To discover that she is in fact not in this time an engineer. She's never done engineering, and she's a bit confused, but she accidentally, with her antiques, helps Kirk and La'an figure out a way to find the thing they're looking for. Obviously, at the end, the good guys win, History is restored. Alternative Kirk's timeline disappears, but not before his relationship with La'an is resolved. We'll get into that. And Han Noonan Singh is left bereft in many ways. There is just so much to love about this episode. We've seen Paul Wesley as Captain James T. Kirk before. Uh, he shows up in yet another episode that deals with time travel in season one. Now, in that episode, I wasn't convinced by him as Kirk. Here I am. Okay, this is a younger Kirk than we've seen before. This is 
essentially pre-Star Trek Kirk. This is effectively pre-Enterprise Kirk. I mean, I know he's captain of the Enterprise in this show, but you know what I mean. And we see elements that we will come to recognise in Kirk. The, the fact that he's very charismatic, the fact that many women find him difficult to resist, uh, certainly Noonan Singh does, although I think for reasons not normally associated with Kirk. And again, we'll get to that. And I think what Wesley does here very well is not do a Shatner impersonation, because you can't do that. I mean, anybody who plays Kirk is going to be compared to Shatner. There's no way round that. And Shatner is, for all his faults and all his many positive attributes, Shatner is Shatner. And the period in which he was Kirk, or at least when he was first Kirk, was a time when leading men were expected to act in a particular way. And getting the girl was part of that. And I think that is where Kirk's womanizing reputation comes from because if you look actually at the stories that Shatner told about Kirk Kirk's I mean yes he does put it about a bit but he's not actually that big of a womanizer I think that aspect of Kirk's reputation comes long after Star Trek the original series was a thing it certainly doesn't come from the Star Trek movies it comes more I think from comedy and stereotypes that were built up around the character long after the character had ceased to be a thing. This episode we see that Kirk is first of all unbelievably clever. Uh, there's a nice little bit where he does some chess hustling to get some money and he basically describes 2D chess as you know for kids. Also demonstrates a very keen tactical analytical brain which if you think about it a starship captain must have but we don't tend to associate that with Kirk. That's more Picard's thing. But Kirk must have had it too. And we see that here. But for all he sparkles in this episode, Kirk is not really our focus. Our focus should be on Christina Chong as La'an Noonan Singh. Now, this is a lot of weight for her to carry here. She is absolutely the focus of the episode and she absolutely shines. She is so good at showing the vulnerability of what is, at least on the surface, a very tough character. And we begin to understand the vulnerability that she feels, the difficulty that she has opening up to other people, the barriers that she's had to build because of the cursed name that she carries. And one of the things that attracts her to Kirk here is not Kirk's charisma, but the fact that the name Noonan Singh doesn't mean anything to him. Khan Noonan Singh dies as a child in Kirk's timeline. And so she doesn't have any baggage around him. And you can almost see the weight visibly lift off her shoulders. That is a huge piece of acting, as is the final scene. when Well, not the final scene, but the scene towards the end, when she is given the opportunity to take Khan out. And she won't do it. And part of that is because she understands that although Khan will be a monster, a genocidal maniac, and that millions, if not billions, will die at his hands, or at least as a result of his actions, she understands that the alternative timeline is worse and so many more people will suffer 
if the Federation does not come about. And the only way the Federation comes about is in response to what Khan and the genetics wars did. But in the end, when it comes down to it, it's so much more fundamental even than that. Because what this episode does beautifully is ask you the question, what would you do if you were presented with baby Hitler? Not Hitler the adult he became, but Hitler as a child before he had done any of the things that he went on to do. By killing him, La'an Noonan Singh can not only save billions of lives, she can also free herself from the stigma that she carries. But she looks at the child, Khan Noonan Singh, and she looks at the environment in which he's living, which is not great. He is clearly an experiment himself. And she has compassion. And she sees not the monster, but the child. And it might just be me, but in the moment she is making that decision, I could see Picard in my mind saying, we don't trade lives here. And she doesn't. She protects the child, not just because she's protecting her, her timeline, not just because she's protecting the future that she's from, not just because she's preserving the history that she understands, but also because she's protecting a child. And if that isn't the Star Trekiest thing, I don't know what is. And yes, of course, it is massively oversimplifying a huge moral question. But that's kind of a Star Trek thing too, isn't it? And so, in the end, I am left, first of all, having utterly, utterly loved this episode. Kirk was great. Noonan Singh was great. Pellier was great. This is solid, solid, solid Trek. If you haven't seen this episode, I can only recommend that you go and watch it. I've watched it many times already, and I can assure you that it, it bears re-watching. I just have to applaud the chutzpah of the people running this show, because to have the confidence to have a star, to have a focus of your show, and to leave them out for two of the three first episodes of the series, that is bold. Last, time, last week I described the decision to have the opening episode of the season to be essentially pike-free as an eccentric choice. Now they've done it again? Well, now it's beginning to look like a policy. And that, my friends, is brave. And I am here for it because it's also really good. If I was in the business of giving out stars, oh, that's easily six out of five. And they keep doing this. I mean, episode two that we reviewed last week, that featured most of the crew spending most of the episode effectively watching television. And it worked. To pull that off, you need to be gutsy and you need to be good. If only more television was as good as this. And honestly, I really don't think there's anything else I can say.
oh yeah, that's that. I mean, I yeah, I should note. I mentioned John Suntris and his friends who are also reviewing Strange New Worlds over on the Word Balloon podcast, which I heartily recommend. Just slap Word Balloon into your uh, pod feeder and look for Word Balloon with John Suntris. If you're interested in comics in any way at all, it's the best podcast there is. It's as simple as that. But John also uh, is a huge, huge, huge Trek fan. And he's really not enjoying season two. So if you are finding my overly upbeat and massively enthusiastic interpretation of what's going on, and you fancy something a little bit less enthused, you might want to check John Suntress's podcast out. I don't agree with him, but I always, always find uh, his analysis at the very least interesting. So, yeah, there's that. And also, something that I I noticed after I'd finished recording that review of Strange New Worlds, which I recorded over a week ago, as you listen to this, something that's been bothering me since I watched season one of Strange New Worlds is where I remember Christina Chong, who plays Laan Noonan Singh, from. I, I knew that I'd seen her before somewhere, and I just couldn't place her. And of course, the answer is what the answer always is. She's British. So, of course, I recognise her from Doctor Who. Somewhat appropriately, given the circumstances, I've already forgotten the character's name, and that was sort of the poignant thing about her character in Doctor Who. She was only in one episode. She was in A Good Man Goes to War, which is an 11th Doctor episode, and she was somebody who was a huge Doctor Who fan, which is to say she knew who the Doctor was, and she'd met the Doctor before. And he had been an, insp- an inspiration to her. And as she lay dying, spoilers for Doctor Who, she expresses to the Doctor what an inspiration he had been. And thanks him, essentially, for putting her on the path that she took, even though it's led her here. And of course, the Doctor doesn't remember her at all, but bluffs gamely so that she dies at peace. It is her and that episode that drops the bombshell as to the identity of River Song. So I guess it's not that surprising that she's kind of stuck in my mind. Anyway, on to the news. So what is happening in the great world of geeky, newsy stuff? Well, I am glad you asked. Last week, we reported that a great number of people were very much up in arms because several big movie studios were not bothering with the San Diego Comic-Con this year, citing things like, we haven't got any films coming up because the writers are on strike, as their pitiful, pitiful excuse that had got the fanboys up in arms. Well, relax. Just relax. We told you that it wouldn't be a problem. And you know what's happened? Exactly what we said would happen. Comics companies are starting to announce what they are bringing. So, for example, on July the 20th, Marvel will be having a a panel, a special event uh, about designing the X-Men. There's going to be an opportunity for con attendees to attend a panel about the art of storytelling led by a whole host of Marvel veterans. There's going to be Marvel's editor-in-chief, C.B. Sebulski, leading a panel 
featuring Marvel's solo superhero service series about heroes, hulks and super soldiers. J. Michael Straczynski is going to talk Captain America. We're going to have Moon Knight on the roads of Egyptian law. It's all going to be incredible. A whole, there's a whole host of Marvel panels that have been announced. Are they in Hall H? No. Are they going to be massive movie stars? No. Is it about comics? Yes. Is it supposed to be a Comic-Con? Yes. I have still reached the point that I reach every year where I look at the calendar and I see that the end of July is coming. And I think, damn, I wish I was going to San Diego. Well, I'm not again. But just because a whole bunch of movie people aren't also going doesn't mean I wish I won't be there. And, you know, what more can I say? Hopefully next week we'll have more announcements from SDCC, which is still, as far as I am concerned, the ultimate nerd prom. So what else is going on? Well, strange things continue to be afoot at Twitter. And if the death knell of the Bird app had not already been sounding for some time, there is yet more blood in the water. I can keep going with these metaphors if you like. By the time you listen to this, assuming all goes according to plan, and that is actually a big assumption these days in tech, but assuming all goes according to plan, by the time you're listening to this, Meta's Thread app will have launched. Now, Thread is supposed to be the next big Twitter killer. You know, up there with Hive and Blue Sky and Mastodon and all the other things that have failed to replace Twitter so far. The difference here is that, first of all, Thread is backed by Meta, which already owns Facebook and Instagram. So as somebody who already uses social media for business, I'm seeing some serious ease of cross-posting opportunities here for a start. It's also been designed literally as a Twitter killer. I don't think the other apps that everybody said they were going to move to were particularly. Threads, assuming Zuckerberg pulls this off, which, again, from where I'm sitting on Tuesday the 4th of July, is not completely a given. Meta has failed at this stuff before, but assuming Zuckerberg pulls it off, they've got the capacity. What One of the issues that all the other sort of Twitter replacements have had, particularly Hive, but also Blue Sky, is that they just couldn't cope with the sudden influx of people fleeing Twitter. There were just too many. Well, I presume Meta has thought of that. And if anyone's got servers capable of dealing with that kind of rush of people, it's going to be Meta. So, I don't know... This, this is a weird one. This is that this weird time travel of recording stuff going on, because by the time you listen to this, we might already know. But as I record it, we don't. So I will be watching this space with you, I rather think. So, yeah, we'll see how that pans out. What else is going on? Well, things continue to rumble on at Aftershock. Uh, issues of comics collections still continue to be put out there for sale. Uh, and certainly as a comics retailer, I am buying them and offering them for sale because I do think it's important that Aftershock, as it struggles with what it's going through, has income. Not because I think Aftershock deserves it necessarily, but because they still owe people I like money. Now, 
many people are coming forward and saying Aftershock owes me X amount of money. I'm owed loads of money by Aftershock. I have not been paid by Aftershock. And as somebody who works freelance occasionally and has to deal with people who don't pay their flipping invoices, yeah, I get where those people are coming from, and those people should be paid. Aftershock has issued a statement uh, to Bleeding Cool, uh, basically saying, yeah, thanks for asking us about this again. Here's our, here's our pre-prepared statement on the matter, which is, there are no non-payments. Everyone who is owed money will be paid. We recognise our obligations and consider creative compensation our number one priority. Yeah, okay. I really think that they think they mean that. I really, really hope they do. There are an awful lot of people who are waiting for an awful lot of money. And whoever's fault all of this issue with Aftershock is, it is not the fault of the creators. As I say, as a freelancer myself, I have a very simple rule. I think of it as the Mal Reynolds principle. And if you remember your Firefly, Mal's rule was this. I do the job and then I get paid. Words to live by. I'm sure you'll agree. Not, of course, that this issue is isolated to one company. Being a little bit cavalier about paying for stuff seems to be a bit of a thing in comics and elsewhere. I mean, one of the things that's getting Twitter into trouble is that they don't appear to be paying for their bills anymore. Where does this come from? If you buy something, you pay for it. If you get someone to do something, you pay them for it. This is surely not a complicated proposition. Well, evidently so. So, yeah, we will watch this with interest and see where we go from here. And that is about it for the news this week, really. I mean, there are one or two other little stories. I mean, the, the big story this week is Threads, which we will keep an eye on. Um, you can find us there through our, we, we, with destination underscore Venus, as we are on Instagram, because fairly sure everyone is going to be on Threads what they are on Instagram. Um, I, I mean, it seems perfectly functional. It certainly is clever to enable people to port themselves over from Instagram so that you already kind of know who's there, which is something that the previous prospective Twitter killers haven't been able to do. I mean, that certainly was Hive's problem. It was certainly um, Spoutable's problem. You didn't know who was there. You, it was not always straightforward to find them. And particularly in Hive's case, they were just not set up for the sudden influx of people. Now, I presume that Meta, having set out to kill Twitter, and that's clearly what they're doing here, has ensured they have the capacity to deal with a massive influx of people on the first day. We will see. And uh, there might be more of that next week. Anyway, time, I think, to move on. So, for the first time in a while, it's time to catch up with what's going on in... I've really missed that jingle. I really, really have. Anyway, we're going to nip into the field of medical science, first of all, because there has been not a breakthrough, but at least an idea about where a breakthrough might be found in the prevention and treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Now, dementia is something that I still don't think we talk about enough. It's relevant on a geeky level because it attacks the brain which is you know the principal thing a geek is concerned with i would argue and of course 
we've lost a fair few geeky icons to the rigours of dementia. Uh, I, I mean, Sir Terry Pratchett would be the obvious example here. And there is just something incredibly cruel about this disease. I mean, I'm not special. I, I have um, relatives who have been struck by this thing. Uh, so so have you, I suspect. We all, we all see it. But until now, progress in actually figuring out how to stop it doing the harm it does has been very, very slow. There have been decades and decades of research. But currently, not a single treatment that will stop or even dramatically slow down the disease. Now, there's a new approach under investigation. It's possible there could be a vaccine against this stuff. Now, if you can prevent it completely, that would be, as they say, a game changer. So what's the logic here? How, how, how would things work? Right, well, one of the things we know about patients with dementia is that they get buildups of what are called beta amyloid plaques. These are clumps of proteins that kind of build up in the brains of a patient with dementia. Um, and so people originally thought, oh, there's your problem. We need to get rid of these plaques. But the drugs that have been developed to remove beta amyloid plaques don't seem to be actually impacting the course of the disease in any particular way. They do remove the plaques. They're very effective at that. So the proposition is that the plaques are not the cause of the symptoms of the condition. They are simply another symptom of the condition. And so in much the same way that if you have a blocked road and so you can't get to Tesco's, you see the traffic jam and you think, ah, the traffic jam's in my way. Therefore, I will remove the traffic jam. Then I can get to Tesco's. And you remove, you know, you, you somehow airlift all the cars in front of you out of the way. Uh, but then there's the actual cause of the problem, which is, oh, I don't know, a massive meteorite crater in the road. Well, it's an analogy. Go with me. You still can't get to Tesco's. So the thing you had observed, the traffic jam, was a consequence of the problem, not the cause of the problem. That's where we are with beta amyloid plaques, we think. So what exactly does one do about that? Well, the theory, in fact, I'm not even sure it's a theory at this point. I think it's more of a hypothesis. But the hypothesis is that the disease may result from a bad immune response to uh, an initial infection, maybe a bacteria, maybe a virus. So the body overproduces inflammation as a reaction to that infection. And that triggers the production of the plaques, which in turn then cause the problem of confusing the healthy brain cells with microbes, which then aggregate into the plaques that damage the brain. Meanwhile, the cells that would normally sort of clean up the beta amyloid cells naturally, uh, cells called um, microgilia, appear to be um, not inactive but underactive in patients that have this condition. Now, all of this is reinforced 
by uh, evidence which is continuing to emerge that people who've been infected by certain viruses, including the herpes virus, which of course means if you've got a cold sore, you might want to look out for that. Uh, and also, and this is actually potentially really worrying, SARS-CoV-2 uh, face a heightened risk of um, dementia in the future. So researchers are now testing vaccines uh, as potential treatments for dementia in an attempt to kind of reboot the immune system in effect uh, to fight the disease rather than kind of work with it. These vaccines would, in theory at least, work by stimulating the cells that clear those beta amyloid um, plaques whilst at the same time, and this is the crucial difference, shutting down the immune cascade response that releases the harmful protein in the first place. Now, the vaccine shots could be used both to present, prevent Alzheimer's and to treat the condition once it's developed. And what is particularly good about this is that one of the potential vaccines that might work for Alzheimer's is over a century old. Uh, the uh, vaccine that's currently used to um, protect against tuberculosis, uh, I'm, I'm so going to pronounce this incorrectly, uh, Basile Kemetguerin or BCG. Shall we just go with BCG? The BCG vaccine, which I know I've had, um, and I suspect many of you listening have had it too, routinely used in countries where tuberculosis remains a public health risk. Not used so much here anymore, of course. Um, it's also administered after uh, bladder cancer surgery uh, to kind of call the immune cells back to attack lingering cancer cells. There have been two studies, observational studies only, but still, observational studies uh, looking at thousands of patients. And scientists have noted that um, bladder cancer patients, patients who've had the BCG vaccine appear to have significantly lower odds of developing Alzheimer's over the next several years. Now that, I keep saying this, correlation is not causation, but it is at least suggestive that the, the vaccine may be helping to prevent against Alzheimer's, at least in the the sort of five years following inoculation. And do you know what? If taking a shot every five years will stop me from getting dementia, sign me up. Now, we're not entirely sure why this works, or even if it works, but if it works, we're not sure why it works. Uh, one hypothesis for why it might be protective against Alzheimer's is that BCG retains, uh, retrains, sorry, the immune system. I need to learn to read my own script here. Uh, what the vaccine is in fact doing is inducing fairly broad-based metabolic changes in different groups of immune cells. Uh, so there's a group of cells uh, called monocytes, um, which switch their energy source from glutamine to glucose, which apparently, I mean, do you know what? I'm reading all of this off a script, which I've researched from the internet. I am not a neurologist. Uh, so forgive me, A, if I'm being a little bit vague, and B, if I'm mispronouncing stuff. Uh, and do you know what? If you're a neurologist, get in touch. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk, because I am genuinely fascinated by this. Um, anyway, this switch from glutamine to glucose as an energy source for the monocytes apparently is important in uh, encoding immune memory, which in turn 
makes immune responses faster whilst also making the immune response better at recognizing actual pathogens. So it's good for reducing um, a bad autoimmune response. Good for avoiding a bad autoimmune response. It's what I should have said. Oh, neurology, man, it's hard. So anyway, there has been, this is what I'm really reporting on, there has been a proof of concept study in which scientists administered BCG to 49 healthy people aged around 65. After nine months, the researchers found that the vaccination affected the levels of different types of beta amyloid in the participants' blood plasma. These findings suggested that the BCG patients had lower levels of harmful amyloid clumps in their brains, which suggests a protective effect. It is not proof, but it's a jolly interesting suggestion. So now, BCG is being tested in a small clinical trial, and I really do mean small, 15 adults with mild cognitive impairment and mild to moderate Alzheimer's to see how it affects measurable signs of the condition. Now, again, this is small, statistically insignificant, but obviously, if it shows some results, it will be easy to scale this up. And this isn't the only vaccine under consideration. The shingles vaccine may also protect against um, dementia. Uh, Dr. Tanya uh, Chitnis, and apologies for mispronouncing that, which I almost certainly did, uh, who is a professor of neurology at the Harvard Medical School and at Brigham and Women's Hospital, is leading um, a project to develop a nasal Alzheimer's vaccine uh, called Protolin. Or Protolin. Um, it's a nasal spray first developed uh, in 2004, in fact, uh, as a vaccine additive uh, called an adjuvant, which is basically a substance that um, boosts up the immune system. It's like a turbo boost for the immune system. Um, Chitnis uh, explained to uh, the website Life Science that protolin, protolin, protolin um, is made of segments of bacteria which are recognized by macrophages, which are a type of immune cell. Now, there's a 2008 study in mice suggesting that it doesn't directly train the immune system to attack beta amyloid, but kind of activates immune cells on a, on a wider level so that they eat the proteins. Again, in theory, this means that protolin could make the immune cells more responsive to the bacteria and viruses thought to raise the risk of Alzheimer's in the first place. So if the protolin can get the immune system to deal with those viruses and those bacteria before they become a problem, Suddenly, the risk of Alzheimer's, I'm not going to say goes away, but it certainly is significantly reduced and the damage done will be significantly reduced. So. There's a lot going on. Obviously, several companies are involved in this and it's a big thing. If you can come up with something that will stop people developing dementia. That is huge. It's huge from a, well, it's significantly better if people don't have this perspective. I mean, 
just on Mercer Insurance, the, the NHS was 75 years old this year. The NHS is struggling. One of the things that it's struggling to cope with is the increasing number of people who develop dementia in later life. In a way that people didn't de develop dementia in later life decades ago when the NHS was first founded because they didn't live long enough. Now people live long enough to for you know dementia to become actually quite common. And the, the, the possibility of making a significant reduction in the number of people who are afflicted with this thing is just so huge. I mean, the increase in quality of life for the people who simply won't get it in the future is massive on its own. If you then look at the knock-on effect, the, the, the grief and the difficulty of looking after people who have developed this is also massive. So, you know, that goes away in large part. And that's before you look at how much it costs for the medical services to deal with dementia. It's a hugely expensive issue to treat. And if that resource were no longer needed, just think what could be done with it. So we're going to watch this one with interest, too. I have got my fingers so very firmly crossed for this. This kind of neurochemistry and medical science, this is where the geeks really do give back to society. Yes, society gave us Star Trek. Um, we might actually find a way to keep people alive long enough to realise Star Trek's vision of the future. Wouldn't that be a good thing? And of course, that's not the only thing that's going on in science. Loads more happening. Although, because we've got some space stuff to get to as well, I'm just going to very briefly mention before we move on, uh, the Japanese J-20 stealth fighter, which looks like one heck of a piece of hardware uh, and also looks a bit like an F-22. Um, but I'm sure they didn't actually steal the plans. What is interesting here is they seem to have developed a new engine, the WS-15 engine which is expected to resolve the performance issues um, which has dogged the J-20 so far uh, and make the plane more fuel efficient, enabling longer patrols and extensive, extended uh, airfield defence duties and general air defence duties. So from a, a geopolitical point of view, this makes the Chinese Air Force slightly more dangerous than it was a couple of months ago. From a geek perspective... Um, we'd have to worry about that and we can just go, oh, cool jets, which, you know, is perhaps shallow of us. But hey, I never claimed to be deep. Anyway, lots to do. Must move on. That's it for science for now. And that's it for science for now, because we also need very quickly to dive in and take a look at what's going on in... And honestly, there is so much going on in space that I do not know even where to start. So we'll start by looking up and checking out what is happening on the sun. Now, we've spoken before about the fact that the sun 
produces solar winds and the electromagnetic storms that come with those solar winds, if they hit us in the right way at the right time, could shut down all the electronics on Earth. It's happened before. Uh, a thing called the Carrington event that happened in the uh, late 19th century. Fortunately, back then, the only thing that was around to be shut down was the telegraph system, which was fairly simple and didn't take very long to get back online. Were that level of electromagnetic stuff to come from the sun, now it would take out most of the satellites in orbit and make them non-functional, which means we'd lose a lot of TV, a lot of communications, a lot of radio. We'd lose GPS. Imagine how crucial GPS is these days. Okay, it helps you find you know that cool new campsite you were looking for, but it also kind of controls global logistics these days. If it goes, that's going to be, at least in the very short term, a very seriously disruptive thing. And we saw in the pandemic how little disruption to supply chains can cause a huge amount of problem on the shelf. So, you know, there's that. And um, what happened is that an enormous and very fast growing sunspot on the sun's surface appeared and then unleashed a mighty X-class solar flare. Now, that is the designation of solar flare that is the most powerful. It, the sun does not chuck stuff out more powerful than that. Now, this solar storm did, in fact, hit our planet, and it did, in fact, trigger brief radio blackouts in parts of the US and elsewhere. And it could have been a lot worse. So what exactly went on? Well, um, because solar observers have um, roughly the same approach to naming things as um, extrasolar system astronomers, um, this dark patch appeared on the sun's surface and was labelled AR3354. And it emerged on the solar surface on June the 27th. Within 48 hours of its emergence, it had grown to cover an area on the sun's surface of about, I mean, we you know, give or take the size of Wales, um, 1.35 billion square miles. That's 3.5 billion square kilometres. Or an area that you could fit 10 Earths into. It was 10 Earths wide. Now, space scientists were, shall we use the word concerned? Because alarmed sounds uh, a little worrying. They were concerned by this massive sunspot, rapid emergence and rapid growth. And they were concerned that it would spit out a barrage of potentially harmful solar storms. So after growing to what became its final full size, this sunspot produced a sizable M-class flare on June the 29th, but then was all calm until July the 2nd, when it chucked out the X-class flare, which was pointed directly, directly at our planet. Now, just for reference, the smallest solar flare class is A. It then goes through A, B, C, then M, and then X. And no, I don't know what the rest of the alphabet did wrong either. The point is, solar flare classes are like earthquake classes. Um, class B is not a bit bigger 
than class A. Class B is 10 times as powerful as class A. Class C is 10 times more powerful than that. Class D is 10 times more powerful than that. And so on and so on and so forth and such like. So we're talking orders of magnitude bigger. So an X-class flare is immense, just immense. So radiation from this X-class flare came pounding into the Earth's magnetic field, ionized the gases in the other part, upper part of the atmosphere and turned the molecules of the upper atmosphere into a dense plasma. As a result, radio signals were scattered, causing radio blackouts, uh, as I say, in the western US and parts of the eastern Pacific. Uh, that's according to uh, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration in the USA. This disruption lasted for about 30 minutes. But the concern was that that flare could have launched a coronal mass ejection, or CME. That is a cloud of fast-moving magnetised plasma. If a CME from a flare that size hit Earth, the likelihood is that we would have a major geomagnetic storm. This would have resulted in massive radio blackouts affecting up to half the planet, that is to say the half of the planet facing the sun at the time, as well as potentially damaging the satellites, as I said, and impacting power infrastructure on the planet's surface. So, you know, you could lose, you know, substations go down and all that kind of thing. So massive, massive, massive power cuts. Luckily, there was no CME. But A3354 has not yet got any smaller and could still spit out more M-class or X-class flares in the coming days. This is a breaking story. This is happening right now, which means there could also be more CMEs. So if you're listening to this, I guess we can be reassured that it hasn't happened yet. But if you are listening to this, I don't know, you might want to back up your laptop. And finally, in space news, just another good news story, really. We've spoken before uh, about the Mars Ingenuity helicopter. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if they officially call it a helicopter, but that's basically what it is. It's a little, tiny little flying thing that is kind of docked with the Perseverance rover. Uh, it was essentially there as a, a, a proof of concept because they weren't sure anything like that would work in... Mars's very thin atmosphere turned out to be an incredible success and this little two pound sort of helicopter drone thing has produced some incredible stuff but it's been out of touch for um, 63 days so two months basically uh, it had been exploring some fairly rugged rugged terrain in the um, Jezero crater which is where Perseverance rover is currently tootling about but it's finally back in touch information is coming back uh and we're getting pictures again and that it's such a brilliant thing to have it can cover so much more ground than a rover can rovers are tremendously slow whereas ingenuity covered 1191 feet that's 363 meters in a 130-second long flight. That's incredible. You know, that's so... And, okay, it can't give you the detail that a rover can, but it can, in terms of mapping and that kind of thing, and in terms of looking to see where to go next with the rover, it's producing incredible data.
obviously, it's a prototype. It is limited in its scope. And, you know, the loss of contact for two months was a, you know, a very serious worry. I think a lot of people had kind of thought, ah, yeah, that was good while it lasted, but that's kind of it. We'll do something more robust next time. So the fact that it's recovered itself is hugely significant. And I think it, it really does bode well for this kind of aerial vehicle operating on Mars in the future. And, you know, for all the speculation about getting humans onto Mars, I think, honestly, sending robots makes a lot more sense, at least in the short to medium term. I am unconvinced by SpaceX's plans for a Mars colony. And given the increasingly fragile nature of the uh, the boss at SpaceX, I'm not sure why anybody would want to fly with SpaceX on any kind of long duration mission. They, I mean, again, no disrespect to SpaceX, they are doing a stunning job in low Earth orbit. They will do a stunning job in lunar orbit. Would I want to go further than that? No, not under the current administration, I wouldn't. No. So, yeah, there's that. So I, th I think the future of robots on Mars is bright, I think is what I'm saying. And so it's very, very good that we have such an innovative robot working and clearly able to sustain itself for significant amounts of time out of contact with mission control. So, yeah, that is all good. So that's it for space, and that's just about it for this week. A quick glance over to the Geek Community Notice Board shows us that we have all the usual stuff, but nothing unexpected, except small press day on August the 5th, which is a day to celebrate those people who make their own comics. Now, in the past, we have had any number of uh, small press creators come to the shop, uh, Destination Venus, uh, including the late, great Terry Wiley, who came for several years in a row. Uh, we're not doing that this year, largely because nobody wanted to come. We have no friends. What can I tell you? Uh, so what we're doing instead is I am taking my comic creating roadshow on the road. At least as far as Oxford Street, because on Saturday, August 5th, I will be showing anybody who wants to come within the limits of the amount of spaces we've got how to make their own comics. No artistic experience or talent, indeed, is required. Heaven knows I have no talent for drawing. All you need to do is bring some enthusiasm. I will show you how to create characters, how to make them distinctive, and how to put stories into a comics format. It's easier than you'd think. At least it's easier than you think to do. It's actually really hard to get it perfect, but anyone can actually do it. And the more people that do it, the happier I will be. So that's uh, at Geek of Treat on the 5th of August here in Harrogate. I will remind you that I am available to come and do that kind of thing at your local school. I do not even always charge. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the place to go. And with that, we are properly out of time. We'll see you next week. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. And above all else, just stay geeky!